The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Internet of Things with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future with totally new sources of information that will change the way you run your business. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, oh, you know you're in the right place, for goodness sake. The buzz today, land of the free or home of the brave. Well, we've never said it with an aura between. Let me tell you what this is all about. The Internet was conceived to facilitate the free flow of information you know, 24-7, 365, 366. You can go out there from anywhere in the world and find what you want, mostly free. Even in the face of technology disruptions, because technology is disrupting itself all the time. And since this is the Internet of Things with Game Changers, we have to look at the IoT, Internet of Things. Well, IoT inherited this great free spirit from the Internet. I think it's a child or a grandchild or a distant, or a not too distant cousin. But now things are changing. Silicon Valley and governments around the world are facing personal privacy challenges and security challenges. Come on, you know what's been in the news recently. And the eyes of the world are watching what's going to happen. Who will unlock the code of which phone or which device, which government will prevail, which company will prevail, which terrorists will go on being terrorists because we can't figure out what they said. So this poses a problem. If devices need to be redesigned, to support what I'll vaguely call court-ordered information searches. Well, this means we might open up a new and dangerous black market for devices that are not code unlockable. I'll just put it that way. We have a lot to talk about. We have three experts coming back. We did part one of the show a couple months ago here on this series, and we've invited them back. It's Gray Scott, CEO and founder of SeriousWonder.com, Kent Sanders, managing partner for cloud consulting, and more at TCS. Shout out to TCS and David Yonker, senior director of big data initiatives at SAP. We're going to be talking to these three gentlemen about their insights on how can you and your company harness the good part of the Internet of Things without in fighting in the risks. So let me get started. First up, welcome back to Gray Scott. As I said, he's the founder and CEO of SeriousWonder.com. He's a futurist, our official futurist. He's a techno philosopher and an emerging technology expert. He is not emerging. He's already emerged as a tech expert where we're talking about technology that's just coming to fruition. Here's the quote. Gray has selected from someone named David Brin. Let me just tell you in case you don't know, because I'd never heard of him. His full name is Glenn David Brin. He's a youngster born on October 6th, a a day before my birthday, but a different year, 1950. He's an American scientist and award-winning science fiction author. You might know his novels, The Postman, which was adapted as a feature film in 1997 starring Kevin Costner. He wrote a nonfiction book, The Transparent Society, that won a whole bunch of awards. Uh, What you might know him from 
mom is David Brin appears on science and future related TV shows like The Universe, Alien Encounters, Woohoo, Worlds of Tomorrow, and he was one of five geniuses in quotes on a design show called The Architects, T E C H S. They had to solve a major problem in 48 hours. Oh my goodness. Here is the quote Gray has selected. When it comes to privacy and accountability, people always demand the former for themselves, that's privacy, and the latter for everyone else. Gray Scott, welcome back. How are you? Good to be here, Bonnie. Thank you. Thank you. Love the quote. Are you a follower of David Brin? He sounds fascinating. He's interesting, and I think the quote really points out something that we're probably going to get into in the show, which is that we have to decide moving forward as a society how we want to deal with a digital uh, uh, infrastructure and whether we want privacy and what that entails or whether we want to become more transparent. So, Gray, are you in agreement or do you think most people demand that they get privacy and everybody else has to fess up? We'll just use that term. Do you think this is the way most people think? It's like, well, I'm special. I get to be private. The heck with the rest of you. Is that the way people <laughs> are really thinking today? Well, I, I, I do. I, I think people... Uh, live in the assumption that everyone else should should be transparent when it affects them and they should have some sort of privacy. But the point is, and I think, you know, the idea here is that companies are starting to realize slowly that when they find out that they have been hacked, that the hackers have been there for a very long time. You know, they may have been there years before they realized that the hackers were there. So, this idea that we can create some sort of system that is private for me uh, and for everyone else, they have to be transparent, just that's not the way the future is going to unfold. I think in the future, we're going to see uh, a digital space that has to be a community of people that agree to be transparent to a certain level. Very interesting. Thank you. And before I move on to Ken Sanders, who's waiting patiently in the wings to come on, Gray, question for you. I alluded to very specifically, actually, in my intro about court-ordered searches of devices. Mm. Where do you think this is going to go? We don't. You don't have to g- take the side of, of that company and that government, mm-hmm. but where do you think it's, it's going to end up? We can talk about this in our prediction segment, but what, what, are you on the fence on this? Do you think companies should be forced to give code to governments when terrorism is involved? Where do you stand? Well, I do think that it creates a dilemma for companies, and and what starts to happen is it moves from the corporate level into the government uh, sphere. When you start to say that, you know, the government doesn't have to be transparent, but they want to see everything that we all have. I mean, that that's where the problem is. So, if we're going to have transparency, the government also has to be transparent as well. Um, and you you are starting to see some of that. Um, Things are going online now. You, you know, now we can see how the government operates. You, you can go to websites and you can see how they're operating. But there's still an unlevel playing field, and we need to level that field. Thank you. Very well put. Appreciated. And now let's move to Ken Sanders, a very busy guy. As I said, he's the managing partner for cloud consulting and ERP architecture services in the global consulting practice at TCS. Shout out to our friends at TCS. And Ken has sent me a rather famous quote by Albert Einstein. And uh, those of you who are tired of my telling you that Einstein lived from 1879 to 1955 and was a German-born theoretical physicist, I might go back to more of what he's really famous for, 
we often see uh, images of Einstein at a blackboard writing his famous E equals MC squared equation. And if any of you remember your physics class, you will remember, I wonder how many of you do, that EMC squared is actually the world's most famous equation. It's considered a mathematical formula with the power to transcend the barriers of language and culture. I didn't know that. It's uh, the equivalence, a law of the equivalence of energy and mass. And E is energy of a physical system. M is the mass of the system. C is the speed of light in a vacuum. So in other words, energy equals mass multiplied by the speed of light squared. Ha, remember that? No wonder his hair was always standing on end. He was brilliant. Here is the quote from Albert Einstein. Imagination is more important than knowledge, for knowledge is limited to all we now know and understand. While imagination embraces the entire world and all there ever will be to know and understand. Ken Sanders, welcome back. How are you? I'm very good, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. We are so pleased to have you back. Are you a big fan of Albert Einstein? Did you remember what the E equals MC squared stand for, Ken? Uh, yes, I remembered, and I am a big fan. And actually, this Einstein quote is my all-time all favorite quote. So tell me, how does it relate to our topic today? We're talking about the freewheeling spirit and free information on the IoT, which it kind of inherited from its, I'll call its grandpa, the Internet. How does this relate to our question of security, accountability, privacy? Where, where, is, where would Einstein be? Well, I would say that, you know, if you look at any progress or breakthrough that's been made in any field of human endeavor, it's not based on what we know. It's based on what we think can happen, and then we figure out how to make it happen afterwards. And if you think of the way that hackers think and their philosophies, a lot of these people do it for fun, and a lot of them are kids. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I have a guy that works for me right now that was a hacker when he was 13 years old, um, and he did it just for the fun of it. And he did it because the idea fascinated him. He used his imagination to say, hey, I could go you know, hack into this site or this system to just see what's going on. Now, because this is something that I want to do, I'll go figure out how to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think as we look at trying to secure systems, secure IoT devices, secure our mobile devices, part of the reason that we're always playing catch-up is that the hackers aren't basing themselves on what's available now. They're imagining what can be done, and then they just think it up, figure out how to do it, and make it happen. Whereas security administrators, um, chief security officers are trained to think in a certain way, and it's always about applying what is already known, what's already been done. So you have a classic imagination versus knowledge battle between these two sides. Very interesting, Kent. I, I was so intrigued when you said you knew a hacker who was 13. I Googled the average age of hackers, and, and I found a couple of interesting articles. Uh, somebody, Some article says that the ISIS average age of hackers has dropped to 17. Then there's an article, the UK police campaign targets hackers as young as 12. And here's an interesting one. One secret that stops hackers, their girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know. And wait a minute. Wait a minute. Here's another one. It says, if you were hacking since age eight, it means you were privileged. I'm going to just leave that one alone. My goodness <laughs> gracious. So welcome to the age of hacks. Okay. We're just going to leave. Thank you, Kent. Very interesting. I, I'm always intrigued when we talk about imagination, if that goes with boredom. And I think Gray knows what we're talking about, that the novelty-seeking Probably it's not just the younger generation, but uh, Gray, wasn't there a term you introduced on another show this week called neophilia about the novelty-seeking gener- information age we're in? That's correct. That's what researchers are calling it now. It's uh, this addiction to the new, basically. Yeah, and I think that's in the DNA of young kids, new, exploring, imagination. So there, we tied those two together. Thank you, Kent, and thank you, Gray. And now let's bring on, oh, he's been waiting so patiently. It's David Yonker, Senior Director of Big Data Initiatives at SAP. And David has sent me a quote from Stuart Walpin, uh, published in the Huffington Post back in January 2018, so a little bit over two years ago. The article is is in the blog section, and it's entitled, Why Privacy is a 21st Century Myth. Uh, David, I just want to read a drop from the opening of this. Is that okay with you before I read the quote you sent me? Absolutely. Go for it. Okay. I was fascinated. Here's what Stuart Wolpen wrote. You cherish your privacy, don't you? Do me a favor. Go into your bathroom. Check for hidden cameras. Pull down the window shades. Get naked. Shut the door. Sit down. You now may now cherish your privacy. Just don't expect to cherish it for long. Eventually, someone else in your home will want to um, cherish their privacy. And then he goes on, I, ra- I raise this privacy issue because today, January 28th, when he wrote the article, is Data Privacy Day in the U.S., Canada, and 27 European countries coordinated by the National Cybersecurity. Alliance. But he adds, Data Privacy Day is not to be confused with National Cybersecurity Awareness Month in October. Very interesting. Every, anybody can Google it, why privacy is a 21st century myth. Stuart Wolp and W-O-L-P-I-N. But here's the quote that David Yonker has selected from this article. And I quote David uh, Stuart Wolpen, in the span of less than a century, we have lost any vestige of the unlocked front door privacy mythically enjoyed by our grandparents <laughs> with more loss to come. David Yonker, officially welcome. How have you been? I have been fantastic. Thank you, Bonnie. Thanks for having Thank me on the you. show again. We are delighted. I know you've been busy like Gray and Kent doing all kinds of interesting things, so I have to ask you the same question. Are you a big fan of Stuart Walpins? Because he's all over the place writing about gadgets and gizmos and what he calls gigos. He writes for Rolling Stone and Playboy and Mashable and Laptop and CNET. And talk to me. Who is Stuart Walpin to you? Well, I'm not a hardcore follower, but uh, it was the article itself that really caught my attention and uh and that I've tracked, because I, th- I think it touches on a, a critically important topic, right? Um, the struggle with, uh, with privacy itself um, and how to view it and, and what our expectations should be uh, in the 21st century. Okay. And tell me something. What do you think about devices being unlocked at the, I will say, the whim or the request of a government? You want to take a position on that one? Well, you know, I... If we take, if we talk about the uh, the Apple case specifically, that's a, a scenario where I would say I, I sure hope that um, you know the tech companies win on that front at this point. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, I believe that um, you know privacy is something that we need to to fight for in a dramatic way. Privacy is something that 
um, was sort of a um, maybe a blip in history, you know, for several centuries. If you if you actually go back far enough, um, you know, we we were uh, we we spent a lot of time our ancestors in communal living. And there was nothing private about your life, right? I mean, you lived mm-hmm. in a one-room house unless you were the king. Right. And uh, <laughs> everything about your life was private, right? You're, you're stepping into the bathroom, you know, it was very, uh, um, you know, the, the, uh, the section of the article that you quoted earlier is, is a perfect example of that. We expect our privacy in our, in our own homes, right, from our own family mm-hmm. members. We didn't have that centuries ago. Um, and now, Gray mentioned, you know, we, we live in these digital communities now, increasingly, and that kind of communal living in a digital world, I think we will, you know, the direction is for us to lose some of that privacy. I don't think we could stop that. We might be able to control the magnitude of loss of that privacy, right? Um, but I don't think we will lose it. I, I think what we need to do is we need to do things very similar to what, what uh, Gray was mentioning, is we need to start thinking about those or uh, you know how we change organizational structures or uh, social mm-hmm. structures uh, to deal with the fact that that um, uh, you know we're, we are heading in this direction. This is kind of the new reality, right? So uh, Gray had mentioned that governments should be open, right? If they're going to ask for these sorts of things, they need to be open and transparent about how they're using this information. I think that that's that's absolutely critical critical way to to think about privacy. It's not just about privacy or not privacy. You know, it's, 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 we are going to lose privacy. It's a question of magnitude. Um, and I think it's a question of uh, how we need to change other social or organizational structures to live within this new world order. Thank you, David. Uh, very interesting. I'm thinking while the three of you are talking about some of my favorite TV shows, two of them happen to be written by Shonda Rhimes, who's famous for very, very fast dialogue. You blink, you miss two paragraphs, and you don't know what the character is going to do next. But most important on her shows, Scandal and the new one, The Catch, they exemplify what I believe David just termed communal living in a digital world. Nothing is sacred. Nothing is safe. No information is private. There is nothing about any of the characters that other characters, mostly the bad guys and girls, cannot find out, use to manipulate them, to fool them, to track them, to target them. I don't know if this is, uh, Kent, I don't know if this is an example of Shonda Rhimes and her team of writers having this amazing imagination or whether they're just actually reporting through fiction, fictional characters, what's really happening in the world. Anybody want to chime in on how TV and probably movies are a reflection of all this before I ask you all what you're drinking? You're going to need a drink by the time I'm done with you. <laughs> what you're drinking today? Uh, Gray, any thoughts on popular media, movies and TV as a, a mirror image of what we're talking about today? Well, I do think that reality television uh, because that sort of came right before this explosion of the internet was a precursor uh, to this this digital dilemma of privacy. I mean, reality television was, you know, I've talked to you uh, before about this, Bonnie, about the mm-hmm. cultural echoes, and that was a cultural right. echo. We were we were at a stage in our development, especially in America, that we were interested in peering inside uh, or behind the veil of people's lives, and it, you know, it, it's become something that's a standard in American culture that reality television has gotten sort of deeper and deeper into what really uh, people's lives are really like. And so that, doesn't, that didn't surprise me, and, and this mm-hmm. stage of uh, digital transparency doesn't surprise me. And I'm, I'm actually glad that David brought up this idea 
of this short period of time that we've had this, this sort of American privacy. Uh, if you look at Europeans, Europeans are much more comfortable with their bodies. They're much more comfortable with nudity mm-hmm. in public. And yeah. America is still going through this old phase of understanding that there is nothing to be ashamed of. And so when we look at leveling the playing field digitally, that's what all these things are. These are sort of stepping stones to get us to that comfortable place. Thank you very much. Ken Sanders, wondering about your POV. Are you familiar with any of the shows I mentioned, uh, Shonda Rhimes' Scandal and The Catch, either or? Yes, I'm, I'm familiar with it, with them. And I, I think that, uh, especially with television, um, yes, obviously I think there, there's a lot of imagination going on because most of the writers don't have the technical knowledge um, to be able to ferret this out. But I also mm-hmm. think it very much reflects the anxieties of the here and now. You know, as opposed to science fiction ah. movies, which may be based in the future, I think yep. these type of television shows are the writer's way of reflecting the anxiety that we, we have because of lack of privacy and how Thank we you. deal with you know, going back to an earlier age where privacy didn't exist. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, David, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I do. You know, I, I, television shows and, and movies definitely reflect, uh, you know, a lot of what, what people are thinking without a doubt. And, and um, well, Bonnie, you know, uh, the work that I've done with the human face of big data, and we've got a number of other films that SAP's uh, pursuing and looking to yes. roll out where we, we sort of explore these topics. Um, you know, film can be an ex- exceptionally powerful way to, Look at the uh, some of the sort of uh, underlying emotional side, right? Not not the intellectual mm-hmm. debate, but but yep. you know the the implications, emotional implications, if you like, in some way of uh, how technology uh, shapes us. The the challenge sometimes, um, you know, speaking to to what Kent uh, was mentioning there is that the challenge is so often a, a good show or a good movie uh, requires there to be conflict. And so, so it's natural to bring in some of these technologies, um, you know, to, to view them in a, in a darker light, right? Because mm-hmm. they provide the conflict you need to tell the story. Uh, you know, if everything was happy in a film, then it's, then it's less interesting. Um, but, but, but having said that, I think Kent's right. Like there are sort of uh, underlying, um, uh, fears and concerns around technology, and and I think writers definitely work those into right as a reflection of of what's going on in society. Thank you very oh. much. Great insights. Yes, I I uh, kind of sprung this on the three of you, but I thought it was interesting for our listeners to know. So now I can give you almost a break, but first we need to know what you're drinking so that everybody can think about the kind of break we're taking. Grace Scott, where are you calling from, and what's in your cup today, or what would you rather be drinking? I'm actually calling from Connecticut this weekend, and I'm having an iced tea right now. Is that a Long Island iced tea, may I ask? (laughs) (laughs) You knew I was going to (laughs) ask. No, 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 no. Just just a straight iced tea is all I'm having. (laughs) A straight iced tea. Okay, good to know. Thank you very much. Those of you who don't know what a Long Island iced tea is, it's for the grown-ups at cocktail hour and happy hour because it makes you really happy really fast. If it's done right, I I can't do it. I don't have the tolerance for something like that, but I'm sure it's fun. Thank you, Gray. Have a good weekend. Kent Sanders, where are you and what are you? What are you drinking today? Well, I'm home in Tampa, Florida today. Um, and I wish I had an exciting drink to drink, but I'm just having a cup of Colombian coffee. 
Well, that sounds good. Did, is it from a pod machine or is it something you brewed in a French press or picked up at a local brewer? Tell us. Well, I actually have a, uh, a friend of mine that is from Colombia. And uh, every once in a while, he sends me a bag of, you know, real Colombian coffee. All of the labels are in Spanish, so I can't read it. But what I do know is that it's very tasty. <laughs> That's important. I think you told us that the last time you were on the show. I think so. I think so. I it's might coming. Have. Yeah, it's coming back to me. Well, I'm glad you got your supply there. Very interesting. Thank you. David Yonker, you want to surprise us with something new and different you're drinking or tell me? Well, I'm drinking a, a caffeine-free tea, tea right now, hot tea. But uh, looking forward to maybe not a Long Island iced tea, but definitely uh, probably a, a light Canadian beer this this evening. Going out with some friends, mm. we're actually we're actually uh, throwing axes. That's apparently the latest craze up here in Canada is to go to some axe throwing event. So we're going to try this out. I don't know how it'll mix with the drinks, but uh, should be should be interesting. Okay, David, you cannot just throw that out on a Game Changer show and not tell us who holds the axe, who throws it, what's the target, how sharp is it, how many people do it, where are the police in all of this, or do you have guaranteed privacy? Come on, couple of couple of notes here. What is, what is axe throwing? This uh, good question. So it's uh, um, essentially you're throwing it at a target. So, uh, so it's all generally safe, and I think everyone has to stay several steps back, especially if folks have had drinks. Um, but it is, uh, it is throwing axes at targets and seeing who can get the closest in a game. Oh, my goodness. I, I looked it up. You knew I did. Uh, you knew I would. Here is book your axe throwing part of your event, batlgrounds.com. Uh, here's another one, BATL Axe Throwing, the home of axe throwing, uh, where axe throwing lives, axe throwing party guide, David. Axe Throwing Party Guide. We created the ultimate axe throwing party guide to make sure you have the absolute best experience when visiting bad axe throwing. Then we have bullseye axe throwing. Oh my. <laughs> it should be interesting. In- indoor <laughs> axe throwing in Edmonton. Oh, they're doing it up north. Everything you wanted to know about axe throwing but were afraid to ask. Okay, we'll just leave that one for another show. Yeah, maybe we can do that one. Okay, I'm drinking cool, clear water because I need to keep a cool, here, clear head here while we get all this great information from my panelists, Gray Scott, Kent Sanders, David P. Yonker. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, a lot more. We really started our topic. I don't know why we go to a roundtable if I really already started it, but there's so much more to talk about. Our topic is Internet of Things, privacy, security, accountability, any vestige of hope that what you say or do or think will be just yours to keep and to hold and to cherish forever, or will everybody else have access to it? OMG. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We'll be right back. Michael or Chris out. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The pace of innovation is moving faster than ever, and the future of business will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. Insights from totally new sources of data, sensors that capture and share what is happening in your business environment, and the tools to understand it and act on it. These are shaping the definition of future success. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. Internet of Things with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. 
out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You're listening to Internet of Things with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Internet of Things with Game Changers. And we're back. Our topic, I forgot to mention, is here. It's looking at you, kid, and listening to the Internet of Things and Cybercrime Part 2. You already figured that out. Great panel today. What a discussion. Gray Scott, Kent Sanders, David P. Yonker, and I'm Bonnie along for the ride. And it's time for our real roundtable. I think we started it about 20 minutes ago. But now it's time for me to look at the notes my esteemed panelists sent me before the show. And let's pick some specific topics to talk about. I have something so amazing and scary from Gray Scott. I'm holding on to my chair while I read this. Here's what Gray said. Privacy may become illegal in the future. And he adds brain fingerprinting or brain prints using EEG electroencephalogram headsets are already being used to read the minds of humans with 100% accuracy. Gray, I'm shaking. Tell me more. How real is this? It's very real. And, you know, every app that you download now it asks you to give a certain percentage of your privacy away immediately before the app is even installed on your phone, right? So we're going to see more and more of that with, with the IoT because these are devices that are not only in your house, but it's starting to become devices that you're wearing on your body, which is even more mm-hmm. intimate. And so what I, what I mean by illegal in the future is that for the system, for the IoT system to work properly without there being false data points within that system that can cause a lot of problems, you have to give away some of that privacy. And so there may be digital points within the IoT in the near future that have to be crossed into the transparent realm before it works properly and before you're allowed to participate in the IoT. So... I do expect that there's certain levels. This is a stepping uh, stone sort of scenario where the first stage we're already in. It's the, you know, you have to give away a certain amount of your privacy to use the apps. I think mm-hmm. the second level is if you want to use wearable technology that's connected to the IoT, then you're going to have to give away some part of your privacy. So you can see that that is leading us into a world that it could in the future be illegal to uh, not... Uh, have, you know, you have to give away your privacy. Privacy may be illegal in the future. Such a strong statement. It still scares me. I, th- I think it scares a lot of people. Thank you, Gray. Kent Sanders, love to get your two cents or 10 bucks on what Gray just introduced. Uh, well, like you, Bonnie, I find that terrifying, um, especially when we talk about privacy becoming illegal um, because, as we all know, governments are not transparent. And if we have to become fully transparent to them in every single thing we do, but it's not reciprocated back, obviously we just give more and more power to the government. Um, and, you know, I'm not a big fan of trusting government any more than trusting large corporations. Uh, so, so to me, the idea of not being able to maintain some level of privacy um, is, is quite scary, especially if it's enforced by the government. 
Now, what Gray was talking about with IoT, especially with wearable devices, or for that matter, even implanted devices, where you do have to give up a certain level of your privacy, there are ways, though, to mitigate that, much in Mm -hmm. the same way if you think about credit card payments. um, uh, Yeah, I've worked with a lot of different systems that accept credit card payments, and there are standards that say that you're not allowed to store or pass credit card numbers in the clear. You know, Mm -hmm. so you have to scramble them. You have to mask them in some way. So I think, you know, there could be a way of still creating unique identifiers for individuals, just as we have unique identifiers for machinery, um, that can actually mask who the real person is behind the scene. You know, and the only way that that information can actually be unlatched, unlocked is through some type of secure key. Um, it's, would it be foolproof? No, but at least from my viewpoint, I would like to at least have that feeling of security whether, and, and privacy. Whether it actually exists, if I believe it does, I'll feel better. Yep. David Yonker, join us, please. Thoughts? Well, I think if, if privacy becomes illegal, uh, then I think, I think we've failed. Um, mm. What I mean by this is that, you know, we are moving to a world that's going to be less private, and I think everyone has to accept that. Um, but we need our, our, we need our economic, our social systems to change um, along with the techno- technological change, right? We often think of technological change, um, you know, as something that's happening. Uh, we design that, right? And, and the change is happening ever so fast. Um, but we rarely uh, talk about how we need to change our social structures or our economic structures to deal with some of these technological changes. So if, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we love this idea of, privacy. In reality, I think there's, you know, there's very little privacy that we have. If I think of my own life, um, you know, from the cell phone that I've got to, to the fact that, you know, everything I watch is online. I don't, I, you know, I don't subscribe to a cable company. Everything's online. Mm-hmm. Uh, all my banking is online. Everything about my life, you know, my, everything I shop for is online. Uh, yeah. You know, my grocery list, everything is online. Now, it's not stored in one place, but if you took all the, the bits of data about my life and aggregated them together across all those organizations, you would have uh, probably an almost complete picture of me, um, maybe just not what I'm thinking, um, but, uh, but you would probably have a pretty good idea of what I thought in the past um, and could probably predict what I'm going to think in the future. Um, and so privacy doesn't really exist, um, mm-hmm. you know, so... so, um, so you know, we need to be thinking in the way around uh, what is, you know, how do we shape our world, our systems, right, so that uh, so that we can exist in a very comfortable, secure kind of way. Um, you know, with this lack of privacy. Um, you know, if, if we live in a world where it be, it becomes illegal, then that probably means that our government structures uh, and our legal structures haven't haven't adapted to this new reality in the way that they should have. And we haven't done a good enough job sort of um, evolving them to where they need to be. Thank you, David. Very provocative. Gray, I'm going to circle back to you briefly, but I I have a uh, question about the statement we started with, Gray, privacy may become illegal in the future. I guess my concern is privacy may become or may already be impossible. 
in the future. And I think we've all been talking about that. Any thoughts on that? Are we at that stage now in what used to be leave your door open, leave your windows open? Hi, Mary, come on in. Oh, Bob, you were at my mm-hmm. house when I was gone. Well, I hope you didn't take the flour because we're baking tomorrow. You know, <laughs> are we, are we, our privacy, we're making tea. He took all the Colombian beans. Can't want to have coffee in the morning. Damn, Bob, knock, call before you come next time. Privacy may become impossible. Are we there yet, Gray? What's the truth? We are just about to cross that event horizon where it will be impossible. And the reason I said this about the brain fingerprinting or the brain prints uh, mm-hmm. with the EEG headsets is that we have gotten to a place now where it's 100% accurate. So, for example, uh, we may, instead of using our, our fingerprints to unlock our devices or to have access to the IoT, in the future it will be your brain. And there are mm-hmm. lots of uh, studies showing that in the future, in the near future, possibly by 2030 or 2035, that the brain will access the web directly. So there will be oh. some sort of interface. Oh. Now, wow. you can imagine the implications of, of your brain having direct access with, with the Internet. So I'm not sure how you have privacy when, when you have that kind mm-hmm. of access to your, directly to your brain. Interesting. Gray, I, uh, Kent, I'm going to go to some equally provocative statements in your list, but I just want to touch on something. The definition of brain fingerprinting, Gray, I looked it up, of course. It's a forensic mm-hmm. science technique that uses electroencephalography, EEG, to determine whether specific information is stored in a subject's brain. It consists of measuring and recording a person's electrical brain waves and brain response known as the P300 MER-MER memory and encoding related multifaceted electroencephalographic response, I did it, after the subject is exposed to words, phrases, or pictures on a computer screen. It was invented by Lawrence Farwell, F-A-R-W-E-L-L, who hypothesized that the brain process is known, the brain processes known or relevant information differently than unknown or irrelevant information, and this was documented in 1991. That seems like ages ago. Thank you for introducing us to that topic, Gray. Interesting and a little bit scary. Let me move on to Kent Sanders. Kent, here's something that's equally frightening. You say the more virtually connected we are, the more isolated we become. And you sent me an example. You said, think of the planet Solaria in Isaac Asimov's book, The Naked Sun, where people never interact with other humans because robots respond to their every whim, their every need. And it may be far-fetched, but as we become more connected to technology... Is this a possible real future for humanity? Kent, why don't you introduce this topic, and we'll see what David and Gray have to say, because I know they will. Well, part of the reason I introduced that topic, um, and a lot of it has to do with uh, the political atmosphere right now. And you know, on social media, we tend to become even more clicky than we will in real life. We tend to mm-hmm. interact with those that share our beliefs and our beliefs only. And as we have more ways to virtually connect with the world, in some cases it becomes less and less reasons to physically connect. I mean, if I could sit in my living room on my computer and chat with people around the world and have stimulating conversations, what's the need to get up and go visit my friends? I'm not saying that, you know, we, we don't have that physical need, but that's what happened, you know, in the fictional planet Solaria people separated themselves, and they connected only virtually. There was no need to meet in public. And even reproduction was not done physically Ooh. because they could connect 
virtually, so nobody needed to actually spend time in the presence of another human. And it became such a pathology that they could not do it. They could not stand to be in a room with another human being. So is that a future for us? You know, it may be a far-fetched idea, um, you know, but, you know, there's, there's a positive side to it when you think of people that are retired um, mm-hmm. and, you know, their family has moved off or their friends have, have uh, died. Yep. At least they can stay connected virtually, you know, by chatting, by being on Facebook and other social yes. media. But I think the flip side of it is the more that we can become connected virtually, maybe the less the need that we need to become connected physically. Mm-hmm. Sad and, and, and can't, interesting. I've been hearing this for years. I think we all did when email, which uh, somebody on one of our shows this week called the cockroach of communication. Who's doing it? Come on. It's all Snapchat and Instagram. Who's using email anymore? I guess I still am. I must be a dinosaur, Ken. Uh, we talked, we talked about, I lost my train of thought here. Yes. When, when email got very popular, there was this fear and widespread in the media that People were going to stop talking to real people. Nobody would pick up the phone anymore. Nobody would need to shake a hand or give a hug or welcome somebody into their home or meet for business meetings face-to-face in the same room. And, and when you're speaking, Ken, I'm thinking about what's going to happen. Just excuse me, gentlemen, but what's going to happen with the adult film industry if we're no longer procreating, uh, let's call it belly button to belly button? And and how are they going to – how are the film, adult film industry going to stay alive if they don't have people – Maybe that will be a relic that people will want to see. The old stuff will come back. But think about what they would depict in that future where nobody's in the same room anymore. That's going to get really weird. David Yonker, you don't have to talk about the uh, P-O-R-N word I just tried not to mention. What do you think about <laughs> the, the – but if you want to, it's fine. Listen, you're going axe throwing, so any, anything goes with you, I'm sure. <laughs> David, what about this isolation? Do you think we're all going to – what does it have to do with privacy? How do you see it? Well uh, – so it, I think it has a lot to do with privacy. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I think that there's, a, there's definitely a trend in that direction, right? You, you, there's, without a doubt, we've, um, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that, um, you know, our, our relationships to the people closest to us have kind of loosened uh, over, over time. And, but our relationships with distant people have strengthened at some level, right? So there's kind of this almost this dispersion, if you like, of, of the relationship that we have, right? We tend to keep con- in contact uh, a whole lot more than we ever did with, you know, the, the high school friends or, you know, the college mm-hmm. friends that, uh, from the past, you know, as they've gone on their lives in, in different places. Um, but, you know, it's, it's sort of uh, deteriorated the, the close relationships, the physical relationships that we've got. Um, but, you know, pendulum stro- swings. So, you know, mm-hmm. we're definitely in the, in the place where that, that's sort of dispersing, uh, you know, but I suspect that we'll see a pendulum uh, swing back in time uh, in the other direction. Uh, it has a, I think it has a lot to do with privacy, the fact that uh, mm-hmm. we are putting more emphasis on these, these relationships that are sort of uh, further or more distant from us, physically at least anyway. Um, you know, with people in the past, if I look at my kids, uh, you know, the amount, of, the amount of time and the amount of information they share out to their network and therefore share onto the internet, right, and stored in servers all over the place um, is kind of mind-boggling, actually, when, when I think about it, you know. Um, st- and, but they have no concern about that. You know, they, they have no concern about the photos they send, you know. No. I would think to do my hair and get dressed before I send a picture. They've got no problem <laughs> about sending it, whatever they look like, you know. <laughs> they just don't care. 
The phones are the new version of reality TV. We don't need Survivor anymore. We need to survive the pictures people send each other. That's what we need to survive. Gray Scott, love to get your input on this topic. What do you think about isolation and privacy and uh, bots doing everything for us? Well, Bonnie, I think uh, what we're seeing in the near future is uh, you have to also remember that virtual reality is, is on its way. And that in itself is a remarkable shift in the way that we live our lives. I mean, you're talking about separating your visual input from the real world and overlaying that with a digital input system. And so I I love the show and I love this information that we're, we're talking about today because this is what we all should be talking about, whether it's from the mm-hmm. consumer side, whether it's you know, person to person, or whether it's inside of corporations. We have to start thinking about uh, the IoT, and we have to start thinking about virtual reality, because that is on its way, and it's going to change everything. Thank you, Gray. I really appreciate that. And I agree. These are conversations people need to have. And Gray, we have audience all over the world. And I think they're going to appreciate that we brought this up. We brought this to their attention and maybe they will start those conversations or tell us about the ones that they're already having. So thank you very much. I was just uh, sending a message to uh, Ira Burke, who was saying to me, he's surprised at the direction we're taking, but he thinks it's great anyway. So yeah, Ira, just stick around. We ha- You haven't heard anything yet. But we do have about Let's see, 10 minutes left. We have a lot more to cover. David Yonker, I'm looking at your notes, and here's something. I'm looking for the provocative statements, the most provocative IMHO in your notes, and you say, we're talking about the Internet, we're talking about privacy, and the Internet of Things specifically. We're talking about hackers. We're talking about the rights of government to force people to give to divulge whatever is on devices that should be private, and private is probably not a real word anymore. But David says, even things need their privacy. David, what do things know about privacy? Are we talking about my refrigerator? Are we talking about your refrigerator? Uh, what are we talking about? Our home security codes, uh, when the heat comes on and when it turns off, when our car starts, when our car says, oh, the fan belt's almost shot. Here's a station. Pull off the LA at exit 42 and go into Bob's uh, auto tech, Bonnie, because you're, you're going to have a, a, a breakdown in 32 miles. Uh, what kind of privacy do our, our things need, David Yonker? Well, so... Things represent us, right? Everything that, uh, everything that we integ- interact with, everything that is out there, uh, tends to um, reflect. Uh, there's a human near it, or behind it, or impacted by it, um, and and so the data. And we often don't think about this, but the data essentially that is generated by all these things in the Internet of Things. Um, uh, in the end, sort of lead back to us. So, so a great example is is the, there's a number of of uh, companies that have been building uh, tires. Actually, Pirelli builds tires. They're now putting sensors in them. They sell them to commercial companies, and these uh, sensors can um, you know track essentially the pressure in the tires, make sure everything's going fantastic, um, and uh, and they beam that information up along with the GPS location uh, to a central server. And um, and so that that uh, the companies who own those trucks can sort of you know track how well the trucks performing. They can ensure that the right amount of mm-hmm. air is in the tire, all that kind of stuff. Sounds very innocuous, right? It sounds very yep. sort of um, safe. But reality is, there's a person driving that truck, 
And yep. so actually every time you're sending information about that tire, you're also sending information about that driver, where they mm-hmm. are, when they were there, and what they've been up to. Now, maybe that's appropriate, right? If you're working for a company, um, you want to know where your employees are. Um, but imagine putting those tires in your car. Now, imagine, you know, people understanding every time you open and close the fridge. Maybe that's not so relevant, uh, but maybe it's a reflection of when you're home and not home, right? And when someone should break uh-huh. into your house or not break into your house. Um, yeah. And so, so everything, you know, has, can be sort of mapped back uh, to people. And, um, and we're going to lose that privacy at some level, but we need to make sure that we're managing uh, the implications of that loss and the implications of that data about those things. We can't just be naive and think it's just about a thing. It always ties back to a person. And I think as well, David, we can't be naive and think it's just something cute to put in our homes or our cars. I think there might be a perception, oh, look at me. I've got the latest, this, the latest. Isn't this fun? My refrigerator knows this. My car tires know that. The implications probably are are secondary and people don't want to know about them, but they should. As Gray said, we need to be having this conversation. Gray, I'm going to ask you to comment on what David said, but just very briefly, because I want to make sure we have time for our predictions, although I think we've been predicting a little bit all along. So, Gray, what about what David said? Even things need their privacy. Agree, disagree? Well, I, I agree with what he's saying to a certain degree. The question is, how do we achieve that? And I think one of the ways is by looking at biomimicry. Uh, a lot of creatures... Uh, in the wild, use biomimicry to blend in when they need to. And I think that's what's going to happen with the IoT in the future, is that some data will hide in plain sight, and some will be revealed when it's, when it's necessary. Data will hide in plain sight. And you call that biomimicry? What does that mean? So biomimicry is uh, using natural systems, uh, to uh, in engineering, it's used in engineering, but it, it can also be used to set up structural uh, codes as well. So, for example, what he's talking about you, using this data for the tire, if you have a thousand trucks on the road at the same time that are near each other, you can cluster that information. It's sort of the di- the digital zebra effect that I've talked about before, where you hide mm-hmm. that information because it's clustered with so many units or so many nodes. And so when you do that with the IoT, it's harder for a hacker to distinguish between one person versus another. Thank you. Very interesting. You know, there is a biomimicry institute. Were you aware of that? Yes. I, th- I would be shocked if you said no, actually. <laughs> Ken, Ken, yes. Ken Sanders, you probably hold the lead, uh, Gray, on our shows for introducing uh, buzzwords and phrases and things that many of us, especially me, have never heard of, but give me great stuff to go Google. Uh, Ken, quick comment on any of the above, biomimicry, whether things need their privacy, and I can give you one minute because we are at our almost our, our uh, predictions round. Kent? Yeah, so what I would what I would ask is when it comes to things needing their privacy, who is responsible for what the thing does, the owner or the operator? So, for example, your car. Um, you, know, you can drive through a speed trap and get a ticket based on, you know, an unmanned radar trap and a picture of the license plate. But what if a friend is driving the car? Now you have to go to court to prove that you weren't the person driving the car. So now we switch from uh, innocent until proven guilty to guilty until proven innocent. So I think as we think about privacy of things and the more interconnected we come, 
what human is actually responsible for the action of those things, the owner or the operator? Uh, interesting. Owner or the opera. I'm taking notes because I want to tweet this stuff. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to ask you now, Gray Scott, I'm going to go back to you. And David, thanks for the very interesting topic. Uh, I'm going to go back to you, Gray, and let's see. Oh, my goodness. We have just three minutes left. So let's do a 45-second lightning round of predictions. Gray Scott, what do you predict will be different if we had this conversation again? And I have a feeling we're going to, because this is part two, but I think there's a part three in our very near future. I'm going to send you all an invitation because we've just really barely scratched the surface. And as you said, Gray, this is a conversation that needs to be had. So, Gray Scott, fast forward, how far in the future? What should we be talking about on our next part three? Let's do it that way. Well, I, I think you're going to see the IoT is going to be merged with our bodies. It's becoming something that's part of our biology. And I, I do see by 2020 that the Internet will be virtual, and that's how we'll access it. Internet will be virtual. Okay, very interesting. i got to put that one down as well. Thank you, Gray. A man of few words but always packs a punch. Thank you, Kent Sanders. Talk to me. What do you predict and how far in the future? I think Gray uh, brought up an interesting point about the um, – IoT becoming biological. You know, we already have devices that can be implanted in our bodies and read by somebody else. You know, so I think the conversation in the future as we do this more and more is how are we assured that the only per- the people that we enable, only those people have access to that information about our bodies based on implanted devices. Hmm. I think you're scaring me. David Yonker, <laughs> rescue me here. David Yonker, we know that axe-throwing parties are in your future, but what do you think we would talk about on part three, if you survive? <laughs> I, I, we need to talk about, or should talk about, or, um, you know, the future holds this question of um, who's going to resolve this debate around privacy. The challenge we've got with Apple versus the U.S. government as an example, mm-hmm. or tech companies versus U.S. government, is the conversations about who owns that data, right, and who owns the right to access that data between governments and, and uh, corporations. The person missing in that conversation is the individual, right, and the individual's rights to privacy and, and how that's handled. Um, so the conversation that's happening in many ways in the tech industry um, is an important conversation, but it's not a complete conversation. Um, and when you talk about the Internet of Things, you know, who's, you know, and privacy, it's not a question of government versus corporation. Uh, it's a question of individual rights versus, you know, the, the broader society. Um, and that, that debate is, is not being had, for example, uh, in the debates or in the, in the uh, situation that we've got between uh, Apple and uh, the U.S. government. Thank you very much. Provocative. I think we just set the agenda for part three. You're all willing to come back? Join me for part three? Oh, yeah. Love to. Good. Definitely. I think we, I think we need to. I just told Ira Burke, um, let's see. Yeah. I think I'm going to steal the three of you over to coffee break with Game Changers. I want to put you on our flagship show. We'll take you away from Internet of Things, which just started season three. Congratulations to Ira Burke. And I think we're, I'll invite you. So I'll send the three of you a date. Okay. It's just about time for us to close down this party. 
We didn't throw any axes, David, but we threw a lot of good provocative thoughts out there, and I know our listeners will appreciate it. Thank you to Grace Scott, our resident futurist, Ken Sanders at TCS. Say hello to Tiffany Stronsky for us and David Yonker at SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Fasten your seatbelt. You know what my call to action is. Maybe it's a virtual seatbelt. What do you tell that to the policeman when he stops you and says, Bob, you didn't wear your seatbelt. I said, well, it's a virtual seatbelt. Can't you see it, officer? Close your eyes and imagine it. Fasten your seatbelt anyway. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Shout out to our engineer, Chris. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Internet of Things with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again on Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.